What if you could work less, but get more done? Seriously, less hours, better results. I I don't know about you, but I'm all in. And when today's guest agreed to join us to share his insights on this topic, I can hardly wait to tap his brain. Welcome to the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. And today's guest is Dr. Alex Pang, best-selling author of several books, including the latest hit, Shorter, Work Better, Smarter, and The Distraction Addiction. Great book, and we talk about it. He has a PhD in the history of science from the University of Pennsylvania. His work has appeared in Scientific American, The Atlantic Monthly, American Scholar, The Los Angeles Times, and many scholarly journals. I am so excited to have his work make my work, I hope, just a little more manageable going forward. By the way, he is in a really cool spot. Those of you watching the video can see this, but he's in a really cool spot. And the only downside is the birds are pretty excited that he's there. So you will hear some, some birds chattering in the background a little bit. It's worth it. Hang with us through that section. By the way, we talk a lot about being a catalyst here on the show, someone who makes a positive difference in the world without getting used up in the process. This episode is being released the week of Thanksgiving and a month before Christmas. So we thought you'd have fun knowing that you can pick up your own, and this is not an ad, you'll see why, your own Be a Catalyst hoodie, t-shirt, coffee mug, sticker, whatever, at the link that we provided in the description. The reason it's not an ad is 100% of the profits, we don't keep a dollar, go to charity. So not only are you showing the world you're a catalyst, you're actually being a catalyst in the process of doing so. Again, we'll have a link in the description so you can pick your favorite style, color, the whole works. They do a good job with it. Now, let's learn how less really can be more on the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. Well, Dr. Pang, it is definitely a privilege to have you join us. As we were talking about briefly off, offline, uh, this is something that I'm personally struggling with. I think a lot of our listeners are probably thinking, wow, this topic is right up my alley for my life right now. And so we're really excited to have you join us and welcome aboard. Well, thanks very much. It's good to be with you. So let's get this out of the way early. You're saying I can work less... But get more done. What's the catch? Yeah, what, what are you? What are you selling me here, buddy? So, I mean, there sort of uh, there really is no catch. I mean, I think that the <laughs> and you know there were first of all there are studies of you know time use in companies or sort of in organizations that show that you know sort of uh, something that I think we all sort of intuit, which is that most of us end up of wasting between two hours and four hours of productive time every day through multitasking, unnecessary meetings, you know, or of other kinds of sort of friction or, or of, you know, sort of sand in the gears that otherwise that, you know, that reduce the amount of time that we actually have for getting stuff done. Um, And so, you know, being able and, uh, but, you know, also that when you look at the ways in which some of history's most you know, productive, prolific, and creative people worked. One of the interesting things you find is that these are people who organized their entire lives around their work, you know, sometimes choosing where to live, who to marry, based partly on a sense that, you know, that that they were going to have to balance sort of these big choices against their own intellectual ambitions. But they also did not spend their entire days working. Indeed, they would spend, you know, four or five hours a day 
focused really, really hard on key work. And they were really good at figuring out at what times of day they were most productive, really, you know, sort of ruthless about saying no to things that did not advance their most important work. And they spent a surprising amount of time to modernize in, you know, doing stuff that we would think of as completely unproductive, right? You know, hobbies, exercise, long walks, that kind of thing. And so sort of between the fact that we, you know, that number one, that are sort of uh, that are our modern ways of uh, you know modern ways of organizing sort of office life or work life actually have an awful lot of sort of you know unproductive time built into them and second that there are you know that uh, that we have lots of really rich examples of ways in which we can optimize our work days to sort of uh, to allow us to focus and to do you know sort of to do our best work um, in, in relatively few hours, um, those, you know, but, uh, the, all of that, I think indicates that if we're smart about it, we can figure out, you know, how to design our days so that, um, sort of we work fewer hours, but we still do work that is, you know, of, uh, that is creative, that's satisfying and sort of, and that we can be proud of. So, all right. So you work, a lot of your works with companies to try to help them integrate the four day work week. Um, do the concepts mm-hmm. you bring to those organizations apply to individuals that are, you know, they're listening to this, they're looking at their own schedule and, and they're trying to consider on a more broad basis. We certainly, I think that the sort of the basic principles um, apply whether you are, you know, whether you're an individual or whether you're part of, you know, a team or part of a part of a big organization. You know, fundamentally, sort of the the kind of underlying rules that govern sort of the ebb and flow of our attention, the amount of time we're able to focus. Um, you know, these are things that are stable. So long as we're human, you know, sort of regardless of whether we are sort of, you know, solopreneurs or whether we work in work in big organizations. Um, the thing I think that is interesting when you, you know, when you look at what companies have been doing with these insights is that there are you know, there are additional benefits that both companies and individuals get when you kind of synchronize uh, sort of uh, synchronize this kind of design redesign of people's time um that make the you know that uh, that make the benefits just a little bit sort of more potent um so you know there's additional social reinforcement that you get when you have time for everybody to sort of you know to focus on their most important work for example um there's also somewhat an effect like you know when you were in college and you were studying for finals in the library Right. Being around other people who are deeply focused sort of has a kind of social contagion effect. And so, you know, I think that the that companies have demonstrated an ability to use these insights just as, you know, just as individuals who have a lot of freedom over their time have been able to use them for, you know, sort of for quite a while and make these, you know, make the benefits of sort of shorter hours and more focused hours available to everybody across an organization. 
All right, your your book, which we'll link to in in the description here, um, it gives a step by step plan. Without giving that away entirely, can you help us understand some of the initial steps for people that are that are wanting to make this a reality? Because I am, I, I'm I'm trying to glean a lot from you today and figure out how can I take this in the right direction. And I bet a lot of other people are too. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I th- for you know, if you're if you're in an organization, you know, I think that the sort of uh, the first thing that just about every company does is um, make meetings a lot shorter, right? Mm. The one hour, you know, all hands meeting turns into a 10 minute stand up with an agenda with, you know, clear deliverables. It also often becomes a lot, a lot shorter. Um, this is, and this is valuable for a couple of reasons. You know, number one, just you think about the amount of time that people spend in meetings, getting a handle on that can sort of free up a whole, you know, can free up hours for, a lot of people. It's also important because it shows that there is this thing that we've all complained about that we all know can be better, but (laughs) which has proved really difficult to solve, but actually is solvable and is solvable by working together. Um, And that's a, it's a powerful lesson in how that kind of cooperation and collective action can serve to, uh, you know, to solve problems that are really difficult for each of us to solve individually. So, you know, I think that the, you know, and so virtually every place that, you know, that I work with and every place that has done this themselves talk about me, you know, the first thing they always talk about is meetings. Mm. And so, you know, I th- and uh, so, uh, so that's where, you know, that's where you start if you are, you know, sort of, if you're a company, if you're an individual, I think that the thing that you, you know, you look first at is when are you, what time, figuring out the time of day during which you were at your kind of creative and productive peak, and then developing a kind of daily schedule and practice that ring fences that, that, you know, that takes distractions out of it, that, uh, and allows you to use that time to optimal effect. Because, you know, two or three hours of deeply focused time in productivity terms is, is worth, you know, six or eight hours of kind of semi-distracted time in a, you know, a state of continuous partial attention. So Linda Stone would have put it. So, um, and so that's, you know, those are, those are the first things to do if you're a company or if you're an individual. So how do you break it in health and wellness, which a lot of folks listening to this Mm -hmm. are involved in that industry. It's so difficult to get away from your, your habits, your traditions, your routines, even if you know it's better. So uh, I, I, I was thinking about today's schedule. I got up uh, early, a little bit after 5 a.m. Um, my first thing I typically do is uh, get the dog up and then go down and read the Wall Street Journal online and check in on emails. But it's very low. I'm, I love mornings. So that would be, if I were talking to you, if you were consulting with me, you'd say, okay, Brad, that's your time. And yet, I'm kind of throwing it away on low mental aspects because I really enjoy that first hour of just kind of seeing what's going on in the world. How's the dog doing? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Would your guidance be, man, Brad, if you're dialed from 5 to 8 a.m., let's use that for, or, or would you say, you know what? what? Maybe we just trim, let's stay with the routine, but let's trim it down to 20 minutes and then let's jump in. What, like, 
what about the per- and, and everybody has their different routine. That's just an example. But but what do you what do you say for those routines that, that people are comfortable with, but it's not necessarily the optimal use of my best time or someone's best time. Okay, I think the the first thing I would say is that uh, you know it is eminently possible. Uh, it's within all of our all of our abilities to sort of essentially experiment with these things with our routines to fig- and you know to figure out whether or how we can improve them in order to sort of to reach whatever goals we want. You know, it may be that you know if you are in an especially let's say you know, high stress job with a lot of uncertainty that, that, uh, that, you know, for the early morning, the most important thing is maybe being in control of your time and being able to do things at your pace rather than at a pace dictated by, you know, whatever latest emergency or, or the priority comes up. If you are working on, you know, on, you know, if you, if you are doing the kind of work that, you know, where, a couple hours of really focused time can be beneficial, then it might be that, you know, devoting some of those hours to that work can be really, really uh, sort of helpful to you. Now, the number, uh, an astonishing number of you know, really creative people get up super early in order to you know, sort of, uh, in order to write or to do other, you know, to do uh, other kinds of work. And I think that there, you know, this is a, this is something that I do myself when I'm, you know, when I'm working on a book and I find that, you know, not only is it really good as a way of imposing a kind of discipline on my day, um, forcing me to think about priorities and exactly what I want to get done because I'm not a morning person. So if I'm going to get up, I'm going to use that time well. But also, you know, creating time in the rest of my day so that, you know, uh, having gotten through some of the biggest stuff for the day, I feel like I have earned, you know, I've earned the right to a nap in the afternoon or a long walk or some other kind of, you know, uh, something else that's, uh, that's equally restorative. So, you know, I think that, uh, you know, that, um, you know, and the last thing I would say is that generally, you know, it takes about three weeks or so in order to figure out whether some, you know, some rather different practice is, you know, is something that you're comfortable with and is generating useful results so that you want to make it permanent. So, you know, you don't have to try these things for, you know, six months or a year in order to figure out whether they, sort of, whether they work, you know, you, you can do a, you can do shorter experiments that are a little bit more iterative, you know, maybe in your case, you know, trying, you know, sort of, uh, you know, doing, doing some work, you know, 15 minutes after you've gotten up at five, or it may be that, you know, you need half an hour or 45 minutes to kind of ease into things. It's exactly, you know, but these are things that you can, you know, that, uh, sort of that you can figure out for yourself without a huge amount of, you know, time or expense. It really is just, you know, being mindful about, you know, about what you're doing, being consistent about it for a few weeks and then evaluating the results and deciding, you know, and, the, and deciding, okay, you know, either you keep, you know, you keep the practice, you abandon it, and maybe you probably have some ideas now for the next thing that you can try out. 
So um, I think that, you know, that, uh, that nobody, you know, I am, you know, everybody, everybody has the capacity to sort of to figure out and iterate and improve on these practices. And it's just a matter of having a little bit of discipline and sort of, you know, and being able uh, being able to stick to something and to be able to reflect on it and have some measures that at the end allow you to make a decision about whether this is something that works for you or doesn't. All right. So uh, let's try this. So what, what about the person, what about in terms of routine or habit, a lot of habits are, I'm used to working 60 hours a week. Like how can I get down to 40 or 30 or 25? So I'm hearing some voices in some people's heads, maybe mine, that say, well, yeah, I, I could cut that back, but then I wouldn't feel like I'm getting as much work done. And talking to you, you're saying, oh, no, you can get as much done if you're more effective. But I don't, f- I, I don't, there's something in my gut that says, and I know the right answer to this, but talk us through this a little bit of the person that says, well, I'm just used to working a 12 hour day or a 10 hour day. I, I, I don't know what I'd do with myself if I, if I did. What about that, the psychology behind that piece? Sure. First off, I think that the, you know, um, if you think about things that you've gotten good at, um, have you, you know, does it take once you become expert at something, does it take you a lot longer to do that thing? Generally, it does not. Right. One of the measures of one of the measures of expertise is that you do not spend the kind of time you did in year one kind of flailing around trying to figure out what it is that you're doing of having a, you know, sort of making elementary mistakes. You are a lot, you know, one of the, one of the signal features of expertise and skill is that you are better at managing yourself and managing your time and doing in maybe minutes, what it used to take hours to do. Mm. The problem is that we, you know, we live in a culture that conflates long hours with dedication and professionalism. And I think that the, you know, that that this is such a power, this is a very powerful default, but it is one that we can overcome. I had one, uh, uh, one company that switched to a, to a four day week and sort of the, the CEO said, you know, I used to hire people, you know, look for people who, you know, who could sleep under their desks. And (laughs) now I, you know, and now I realize I am not interested in the person who needs 12 hours to do something, right? What I want is the person who needs six hours to do that thing. Mm. And I think that the, you know, what that, what that indicates is both the, you know, the power, the power of the default that says that long hours equal something good. Um, but also the fact that this is a default that is, you know, that is changeable. Um, as for the question of what do you do with your time? people figure that out. Um, you know, the, I think, you know, I've, uh, one of the things that I always do when I'm spending time with companies that have moved to four day weeks is, you know, ask people what they do with their free time and they do, you know, like shockingly wholesome things, right. They go back, you know, they start going back to the gym, they cook more, you know, all the things that you do when you don't have enough time that aren't very healthy, those habits you give up and you, you know, mm. and you kind of take back the sort of the ones that the ones that do you good. Yeah. You spend more time with family, you do more community stuff. And so, you know, sort of uh I, you know, I will 
I, I will not tell you what you should do with that, with those hours that you get back, but it is much less of a problem than you think it's going to be. So, um, if you're, you know, if you're smart enough to figure out how to move to something like a four day week or a six hour day, then you're smart enough to figure out what to do with your free time. Okay. So let's talk about what you just threw out there. The four day week versus the six hour day, mm-hmm. technically about the same, but I was talking to somebody just the mm-hmm. other day and they were recommending lean to the four hour or four day week, because that keeps work completely out of your head. You don't have the distraction. You're not thinking about it all day long while you're supposedly enjoying yourself. Whereas the six, six hour day you may not do that or the four hour day or whatever we talk about may not do that because you, you work. And then those extra three, four hours you've got, you're just ruminating. You're just like, Oh man, what oh, that email that came through that I didn't get that done. Do you have a strong preference to one or the other, or do you feel like, you know what? They're basically the same. It's how you handle it. Um, there is not yet strong evidence that indicates whether psychologically one of them is better. One of them is better than the other in terms of, you know, reduction in rumination time or increased sort of uh, increased value for sort of restoration. Um, I think you know for most organizations it comes down to what the market will you know sort of will put mm-hmm. up with. Um, there are plenty of you know there are some industries like advertising and PR where not a lot already happens on Fridays. Right. Nobody publishes good news on Fridays. And so that's a natural day to cut out of the calendar. In other cases, companies that feel like, you know, you need to have a kind of public face five days a week, reducing working hour, you know, reducing working hours across all five days feels like the more sensible thing. And then there are some cases where, you know, companies and our government offices will move to a shift system where, People work six-hour days, but the office is actually open twelve hours a day, and so you, you know, your kind of interface with your customers, with your public, actually expands even as working hours for individuals goes down. And so that's another, which is important, you know, with uh, with governments because there's always suspicion about you know sure. lazy bureaucrats, you know, blah blah blah. But you know, if you can now deal with, you know, if it's if this is a change that makes it easier for the public to get public services, then people are much more likely to be, you know, to be in favor of it. So, um, but I think, you know, and then past that, different people will maybe have preferences based upon other external things, child pickup, um, you know, whether you have hobbies where being able to, you know, get away for two and a half days would be like a game changing thing. Um, but we don't yet really know whether in terms of sort of long-term psychological benefit or health benefits, whether moving to a six hour day is better than moving to four, eight hour days. That's just something we got to you know, something I yeah. hope someone is able to answer before long. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You mentioned objectively tracking some of this stuff. Let's run down that path a little bit. So someone says, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. I'm all in. What would be some of the things you'd recommend they do track? So it's not simply they've just eliminated part of their job, but they're literally getting the same things or more done and yet Mm -hmm. not working 60 hour weeks, 50 hour weeks, et cetera. Right. So, 
it is important to have sort of some measure to have measures or standards for um, for success during your trial period. You think of most most companies will do a, a trial, let's say, of three months, um, during which you know you try and figure out how to make all this work. It's a highly experimental period. You're trying a whole bunch of uh, bunch of bunch of new practices, and at the end of that, you make a decision: is you know does this feel like something that the that the organization can sustain? Generally, most places will not use radically different measures than they had previously. So, you know, if it's revenues, whether it's, you know, whether it's uh, meeting project deadlines, um, there may, you know, sort of customer satisfaction, you keep the same things, partly because you're doing enough other surgery to the rest, you know, to your organization so that you don't need to try and figure out some complicated new KPI or OKR um, on top of all of that. The other thing is that in order to make this work, you need to give people both some clear standards by which they can measure their progress, but also plenty of freedom to figure out how to redesign their jobs, how to redesign their working hours so that they can meet these objectives. No boss in a company larger than maybe two people is going to be able to tell everybody how to do their jobs in four days rather than five. People are experts at their own work. Right. Give it, and if you give them the freedom, they will be able to figure this out for themselves. But you need to give them the freedom to do that. At the same time, you need some kind of measure that gives them confidence that they're doing the right thing, that they're moving in the right direction. So general, for most places, what that means is you stick with the same measures that you've been using, you've been using all along. And then on top of that, you might add something like NPS scores or some kind of, you know, places will use weekly surveys that measure collaboration level, happiness in the workplace. Sort of, uh, there, were, there were a few different services that do that sort of thing. And being able to measure, particularly measure those before a trial and during and after can be useful as a way of getting a sense of not just, are we making enough to keep the lights on, but are people happier? Are they, you know, do they, you know, do they feel like they're working better with their colleagues? Because that in turn will tell you how, you know, will give you other data about how sustainable this is going to be over the long run. Because, you know, if, you know, if you can maintain the same levels of productivity, but people are getting really, really stressed, then that suggests you're probably not going to be able to maintain this, you know, for very long. And you've got to make some kind of course correction. All right. So as I've said, I love this idea. I've been trying to, knowing this interview has been coming up, I've been trying to implement my own version of this over several months, but I keep getting pulled back in. It's like gravity's drawing me in. What are some of the pitfalls mm -hmm. that I'm probably falling for that you've seen out there that people, they start, they, they do this for a couple of months and then they start drifting back to the, whatever it was before, 40, 50, 60 hour weeks. Right. You know, what I see in organizations who try it and then um, abandon it are a couple things. One of them is you have people who are, you know, uh, some cadre of younger people who are less experienced, who feel like either they're not going to get the kind of professional development that their or peers working longer hours will have, or they just don't have the expertise necessary to redesign their jobs. Okay. Um, you know, generally, generally people who you know, really dive into this with sort of, you know, head first are folks who have 
you know, enough professional experience so that they feel, you know, so that they know how to do their jobs. They know what's broken in the industry and they feel experienced enough to be able to fix it. Very often, they're also, you know, parents of young children. So they have a really strong incentive to figure out how to be, you know, how to win back more time for themselves. Um, I think also that in a couple of cases, there were places where, you know, investors rebelled or uh, or where um, they felt like it had too adverse an effect on company culture that, you know, uh, that one place, for example, allowed everyone to choose to choose their own day off. And mm-hmm. this is a video production company. So people were already spending a lot of time out with clients. And so, you know, sort of. And so the office felt like a ghost town. And so, you know, and so they pulled back because they didn't, you know, they didn't like where the effect that it was having on the kind of sociability of the company. So, you know, but I think that, you know, more broadly there, uh, it is always really tough to try to implement a change like this in a world that hammers the message that, you know, that overwork is both inescapable and inevitable and a good thing. And, you know, that sneaking, you know, yeah, you know, and moving away from that sneaking suspicion that, you know, uh, that uh, that if you know that on the, you know, on the day that you're taking off, there is some big opportunity that you know some potential new client or you know something, you know, something that you are going to miss because you are no longer always on and always available, is you know I think that that is that is a genuine anxiety that you've got to kind of uh, sort of uh, sort of learn to overcome. The good news, though, is that it certainly is possible to overcome it and that the benefits that come over time from learning either how to rest better yourself, redesigning your days, or as part of an organization, figuring out how to do this for everybody, that the benefits outweigh whatever you know, potential, you know, kind of theoretical lost opportunities that sort of might uh, you know that uh, that might be left on the table because you're now working a, everyone's working a six hour day or thirty you know or six hour day or four day week right right um, okay you you've you've given me you give me some traction here I I don't want I've just got a couple of questions left I I don't want to have us sure. wrap this up without touching on one of your early books the distraction addiction that seems to be such a big issue. I'd say bigger than any time in my lifetime before. Um, what are some of the insights from that book that might get us rolling on in the right direction in terms of distractions? Things that might surprise people, not your typical stuff, but what are things that people might go, wait, what? That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the one of the key messages of the distraction addiction was that we need to think of our relationships with technologies a little differently than we normally do, right? Humans actually have an incredible capacity to use technologies to kind of extend our physical abilities and our cognitive abilities. Philosophers talk about this idea of the extended mind, which the the uh, and the short version is that humans are amazingly good at offloading certain kinds of tasks onto our phones or to, you know, to paper or such. And that this is, you know, and that this is actually something that makes us more human. One of the things that social media and other kinds of very distracting technologies do 
is kind of hack into that relationship and so that the you know the end result is not our own enhancement our own the you know the improvement of our own cognitive abilities but sort of an improvement in our sort of in you know companies abilities to reach us with targeted advertising or you know to nudge us to certain other kinds of behaviors and so really you know the key these days is not to figure out how to escape from escape from technology but rather to be more thoughtful about the you know to take notice of the effect that it has on us and to be able to kind of re- rethink and redesign our relationships with it so that the uh, so that we're able to get what we want from it rather than what you know what a facebook and twitter want um i think that the so you know i think that uh, however you know once you begin to be armed with that knowledge you know it is uh, that that can start you on the process of making more thoughtful choices rather than kind of defaulting to what the system wants you to do and you know and help you kind of take back control of that of your relationship with your devices you know fortunately in the last few years we've had things like uh, sort of reports on screen time um the implementation of focus time in ios um focus modes in windows that go some way to helping us sort of deal with some of these issues and i think that so the 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 uh, the kind of toolbox that we have for helping us manage this fortunately has gotten has gotten better but of course you know companies also themselves are getting better at developing ever newer ways of trying to capture and commoditize and resell our attention. But, you know, I think that the, that, you know, the, the, the most important thing to recognize is that these relationships are very powerful. They are part of what make us human. And that if we can regain control over them, then we can have much better, much better and much more human lives with these technologies than we can otherwise. I love what you said. I was just jotting a note down here. What be clear, be purposeful about what we want out of it versus what, you know, fill in the blank social media company wants out of it. So essentially you're saying you get to be the chief technology officer of your life. Like that's what we need to be doing. We need to be yes. analyzing how much time is being spent. Why are we using Twitter? What is the purpose of Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever? And is that, producing the outcome we want, just like a CTO would do for a company. I love that. Love that. Exactly. What what about outside of the technology side? Any other uh, aspects of the distraction piece that maybe we haven't really considered before? Hmm. That is a good question. I mean, it's the, the book, the book came out, you know, eight years ago. So I've, it's been, it's been a while, (laughs) but no, I think that the, you know, we, that's, let me think for a second. Sure. You know, you know, it is absolutely the case that I think over the last year and a half, one of the things that we have learned is the degree to which, you know, our attention and how we are, the degree to which we are able to spend our time well on, on the things that we mean to spend them on really depend on 
developing developing and being in a world that supports good you know supports you know sort of uh, supports routines right good practices routines are the sort of thing that tend to get a bad rap right you know mm-hmm. something that is routine is you know it's it kind of dull negative, it's not right. but yeah exactly however as you know i think we've all you know we've all had a year and a half in which know in which our normal lives you know have been sort of you know to one degree or another blown up and i think we've seen that you know in point of fact routines are an essential foundation Mm. for having good lives and Mm. for doing good work and in a sense they provide us a way you know sort of when when they serve us well one of the things that they do is help us focus our time on the things that really matter to us rather than Sort of uh, rather than distract our time onto things that do not, mm. and so I guess in a way, if I were you know if I were writing a sequel to the distraction addiction, it would be about you know it would be about focus and distraction around time rather than around you know sort of uh, around cognition and uh, you know cognition and and attention. I think you can apply the same kinds of the same kinds of principles and rules to how we spend our time just as you know how we spend the firing of our neurons and the last year shows that shows how important it is to pay attention to both of those beautiful very well said and thank you for taking the time to say you know what i'm not going to give you a road answer let me think about this for a second so nice job all right last question uh, occasionally we like to pass the audition (laughs) you did good uh every once in a while we like to ask our guests how are you applying this in your life. So are there some things that you've been doing over the last 18 months based on your research, based on your ongoing reading that have changed that you've seen be effective either in terms of distractions or in terms of fine tuning your own work schedule? Mm -hmm. You know, I do all the stuff that I talk about in rest, right? You know, I get up super early to write. I have, you know, I've become a huge fan of naps. Um, I have two dogs. And so I spend a lot of time outdoors with them. And, you know, normally I'm, you know, in California, in the Bay Area, which has fantastic networks of parks and trails and things. So it's really a great place to both be super focused at sort of uh, in the way that Silicon Valley kind of expects, but also sort of to put that aside and to get out. Um, I think that over the last year and a half, are there things that I have done differently? You know, in my own life, the thing that I have missed most has been the ability to travel, Mm. obviously for, you know, for self-evident reasons. And I think that the, you know, while, you know, getting up to do a a 3am talk in California to, you know, sort of a morning session in Munich reproduces some of the feeling of being on an airplane and jet lagged. It's still not exactly (laughs) the same sort of the same thing. Um, I, you know, the, but it has reminded me of the degree to which of, uh, being on the road actually was an opportunity to practice in a different, in a different kind of mode. Many of the things that I talk about shaping and improving work at home that, you know, uh, the, the things, the things that I liked best about being on the road often were you know, being able in the evenings to go on like long walks and, you know, in 
London or Seoul right. or wherever, and you know, think through, you know, think through, think through, and reflect on the stuff that I've been do, doing during the day. You know, the opportunity to sort of, ha- you know, to have periods where you're both working really hard at a keynote, at a conference, at a client site, but also, you know, structured time where there, you know, where you're sitting on the plane. And you really can do nothing but listen to the hum of the engine yeah. and sort of, you, you know, and you just, you know, and the best and sort of have these long stretches where the best thing you can do is just let your mind go and ruminate. I think that the, and I've realized that, you know, the thing that, uh, that, you know, that, you know, while I had not really thought of travel as an opportunity to practice these rules for rest and for kind of organizing your days, that kind of organically happened, mm. which is, which I think is a, you know, is a testament to the fact, you know, even, you know, even during those times in our lives where, you know, you're having to make sure, you know, you got to get to the airport by this time, you know, you've got very strict, you know, you're right. very There's strict no, deadlines no or places yeah. you've got to be. There's no flexibility there, but even in, you know, even in those kinds of schedules, it is possible to find periods that you can reclaim for yourself that can rebalance that kind of intensity of work. And, you know, if you look for it, you can find the time for that kind of rest and reflection that, you know, not only make your life better, but make your work better. Beautiful. Dr. Pang. Great stuff, man. Thank you. We worked really hard to get this interview lined up. You did great. It was worth the wait. Good luck with everything you're, you're dealing with on your end. Really appreciate the time. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm in. How about you? Great stuff from Dr. Alex Pang. Again, his new book is titled Shorter, Work Better, Smarter. Thanks for tuning in to the number one podcast in health and wellness coaching. Next week's guest... Next week's guest is Dr. Michelle Barron, the Senior Medical Director at UC Health and Professor of Medicine, the Division of Infectious Diseases. You know what's coming. She's going to be joining us to answer all of the latest questions about the vaccine developments and cut through all the myths that you're hearing from a medical and scientific point of view, not a, hey, I'm a charismatic person, listen to me. But what does the research really say? What does the science really say? And I'm going to ask her the questions that you're all asking, that we're seeing on social media, et cetera. So you won't want to miss that one. If you're a health and wellness coach or you're thinking about heading that way in your career, we'd love to have you join us over on the Facebook forum. It's called the Health and Wellness Coaching Forum, and you can find it in the groups. We'll have a link to that, or you can drop us a note, results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. We can send over that link. And obviously, if you have any other questions, feel free to reach out. Now it's time to be a catalyst on this journey of life, the chance to make a positive difference in the world while simultaneously improving our own lives, the essence of being a catalyst. This is Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. Make it a great rest of your week, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast, or maybe over on the YouTube Coaching Channel.